Section six of the Life of Richard Nash, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith. Edited by Peter Cunningham. By this wise and just act, all Nash's future hopes of succeeding by the tables were blown up. He had now only the justice and generosity of his confederates to trust to, but that he soon found to be a vain expectation. For, if we can depend on his own memorials, what at one time they confessed, they would at another deny. And though upon some occasions they seemed at variance with each other, yet when they were to oppose him, whom they considered as a common enemy, they generally united with confidence and success. He now therefore had nothing but a lawsuit to confide in for redress, and this is ever the last expedient to retrieve a desperate fortune. He accordingly threw his suit into chancery, and by this means the public became acquainted with what he had long endeavoured to conceal. They now found that he was himself concerned in the gaming-tables, of which he only seemed the conductor, and that he had shared part of the spoil, though he complained of having been defrauded of a just share. The success of his suit was what might have been naturally expected. He had but at best a bad cause, and as the oaths of the defendants were alone sufficient to cast him in chancery, it was not surprising that he was non-suited. But the consequence of this affair was much more fatal than he had imagined. It lessened him in the esteem of the public, it drew several enemies against him, and in some measure diminished the authority of any defence he could make. From that time, about the year 1745, I find this good-natured but misguided man involved in continual disputes, every day calumniated with some new slander, and continually endeavouring to obviate its effects. Upon these occasions his usual method was, by printed bills handed about among his acquaintance, to inform the public of his most private transactions with some of those creatures with whom he had formerly associated. But these apologies served rather to blacken his antagonists than to vindicate him. They were in general extremely ill-written, confused, obscure, and sometimes unintelligible. By these, however, it appeared that W. was originally obliged to him for the resort of company to his room, that Lady H., who had all the company before W.'s room was built, offered Nash a hundred pounds for his protection, which he refused, having previously promised to support Mrs. W. It appears by these apologies that the persons concerned in the rooms made large fortunes, while Nash still continued in pristine indigence, and that his nephew, for whom he had at first secured one of the rooms, was left in as great distress as he. His enemies were not upon this occasion contented with aspersing him as a confederate with sharpers. They even asserted that he embezzled the subscriptions of gentlemen and ladies, which were given for useful or charitable purposes. But to such aspersions he answered by declaring, to use his own expression, before God and man, that he never diverted one shilling of the said subscriptions to his own use. Nor was he ever thought to have done it, till new enemies started up against him. Perhaps the reader may be curious to see one of these memorials written by himself, and I will indulge his curiosity, merely to show a specimen of the style and manner 
of a man whose whole life was passed in a round of gaiety and conversation, whose jests were a thousand times repeated, and whose company was courted by every son and daughter of fashion. The following is particularly levelled against those who, in the latter part of his life, took every opportunity to traduce his character. A Monitor, for the Lord hateth lying and deceitful lips. Psalm. The curse denounced in my motto is sufficient to intimidate any person who is not quite abandoned in their evil ways, and who have any fear of God before their eyes. Everlasting burnings are a terrible reward for their misdoings, and nothing but the most hardened sinners will oppose the judgment of heaven, being without end. This reflection must be shocking to such as are conscious to themselves of having erred from the sacred dictates of the psalmist, and who following the blind impulse of passion, daily forging lies and deceit to annoy their neighbour. But there are joys in heaven which they can never arrive at, whose whole study is to destroy the peace and harmony and good order of society in this place. This carries little the air of a bagatelle. It rather seems a sermon in miniature, so different are some men in the closet and in conversation. The following I have taken at random from a heap of other memorials, all tending to set his combination with the aforementioned parties in a proper light. E. O. was first set up in A-E's room, the profits divided between one C-K, the inventor of the game, and A-E. The next year, A-E, finding the game so advantageous, turned C-K out of his room, and set the game up himself. But C-K and his friends hired the crier to cry the game down, upon which A-E came running to me to stop it, after he had cried it once, which I immediately did, and turned the crier off the walks. Then A-E asked me to go a fourth with him in the bank, which I consented to. C-K next day took me into his room which he had hired, and proffered me to go half with him, which I refused, being engaged before to A-E. J-E then set up the same game, and complained that he had not half play at his room, upon which I made them agree to join their banks, and divide equally the gain and loss and I to go the like share in the bank. I, taking them to be honest, never inquired what was won or lost, and thought they paid me honestly, till it was discovered that they had defrauded me of two thousand guineas. I then arrested A-E, who told me I must go into Chancery, and that I should begin with the people of Bath, who had cheated me of ten times as much, and told my attorney that J-E had cheated me of five hundred, and wrote me word that I probably had it not under his hand, which was never used in play. Upon my arresting A-E, I received a letter not to prosecute J-E, for he would be a very good witness. I writ a discharge to J-E for £125 in full, though he never paid me a farthing, upon his telling me if his debts were paid he was not worth a shilling. Every article of this I can prove from A-E's own mouth, as a reason that he allowed the bank-keepers but ten per cent, because I went twenty, and his suborning, to alter his informations. Richard Nash. This gentleman's simplicity, in trusting persons whom he had no previous reasons to place confidence in, seems to be one of those lights into his character, which while they impeach his understanding, 
do honour to his benevolence. The low and timid are ever suspicious, but a heart impressed with honourable sentiments expects from others sympathetic sincerity. But now that we have viewed his conduct as a gamester, and seen him on that side of his character, which is by far the most unfavourable, seen him declining from his former favour and esteem, the just consequence of his quitting, though but ever so little, the paths of honour, let me turn to those brighter parts which gained him the affection of his friends, the esteem of the corporation which he assisted, and may possibly attract the attention of posterity. By his success we shall find that figuring in life proceeds less from the possession of great talents than from the proper application of moderate ones. Some great minds are only fitted to put forth their powers in the storm, and the occasion is often wanting during a whole life for a great exertion. But trifling opportunities of shining are almost every hour offered to the little sedulous mind, and a person thus employed is not only more pleasing but more useful in a state of tranquil society. Though gaming first introduced him into polite company, this alone could hardly have carried him forward without the assistance of a genteel address, much vivacity, some humour, and some wit. But, once admitted into the circle of the beau monde, he then laid claim to all the privileges by which it is distinguished. Among others, in the early part of his life, he entered himself professedly into the service of the fair sex. He set up for a man of gallantry and intrigue, and, if we can credit the boasts of his old age, he often succeeded. In fact, the business of love somewhat resembles the business of physic. No matter for qualifications, he that makes vigorous pretensions to either is surest of success. Nature had by no means formed Mr. Nash for a beau garçon. His person was clumsy, too large and awkward, and his features harsh, strong, and peculiarly irregular. Yet even with those disadvantages, he made love became a universal admirer of the sex, and was universally admired. He was possessed, at least, of some requisites of a lover. He had assiduity, flattery, fine clothes, and as much wit as the ladies he addressed. Wit, flattery, and fine clothes, he used to say, were enough to debauch a nunnery. But my fair readers of the present day are exempt from this scandal and it is no matter now what he said of their grandmothers. As Nestor was a man of three ages, so Nash sometimes humorously called himself a beau of three generations. He had seen flaxen bobs succeeded by majors, which in their turn gave way to negligence, which were at last totally routed by bags and ramillies. The manner in which gentlemen managed their amours in these different ages of fashion were not more different than their periwigs. The lover in the reign of King Charles was solemn, majestic, and formal. He visited his mistress in state, languished for the favour, kneeled when he toasted his goddess, walked with solemnity, performed the most trifling things with decorum, and even took snuff with a flourish. The beau of the latter part of Queen Anne's reign was disgusted with so much formality, he was pert, smart, and lively. His billets doux were written in a quite different style from that of his antiquated predecessor. He was ever laughing at his own ridiculous situation, 
till at last he persuaded the lady to become as ridiculous as himself. The bow of the third age, in which Mr. Nash died, was still more extraordinary than either. His whole secret in intrigue consisted in perfect indifference. The only way to make love now, I have heard Mr. Nash say, was to take no manner of notice of the lady, which method was found the surest way to secure her affections. However these things be, this gentleman's amours were, in reality, very much confined in the second and third age of intrigue. His character was too public for a lady to consign her reputation to his keeping. But in the beginning of life, it is said, he knew the secret history of the times, and contributed himself to swell the page of scandal. Were I upon the present occasion to hold the pen of a novelist, I could recount some amours in which he was successful. I could fill a volume with little anecdotes, which contain neither pleasure nor instruction, with histories of professing lovers, and poor believing girls deceived by such professions. But such adventures are easily written, and as easily achieved. The plan, even of fictitious novel, is quite exhausted. But truth, which I have followed here, and ever designed to follow, presents in the affair of love scarce any variety. The manner in which one reputation is lost exactly resembles that by which another is taken away. The gentleman begins at timid distance, grows more bold, becomes rude, till the lady is married or undone. Such is the substance of every modern novel. Nor will I gratify the pruriency of folly at the expense of every other pleasure my narration may afford. Mr. Nash did not long continue a universal gallant, but in the earlier years of his reign entirely gave up his endeavours to deceive the sex, in order to become the honest protector of their innocence, the guardian of their reputation, and a friend to their virtue. This was a character he bore for many years, and supported it with integrity, assiduity, and success. It was his constant practice to do everything in his power to prevent the fatal consequences of rash and inconsiderate love, and there are many persons now alive who owe their present happiness to his having interrupted the progress of an amour that threatened to become unhappy or even criminal by privately making their guardians or parents acquainted with what he could discover. Footnote. The gods their peculiar favour to show sent Hermes to Bath in the shape of a bow. Long reigned the great Nash, this omnipotent lord, respected by youth and by parents adored. For him not enough at a ball to preside, the unwary and beautiful nymph would he guide. Oft tell her a tale how the credulous maid by man, by perfidious man, is betrayed, taught charity's hand to relieve the distressed, while tears have his tender compassion expressed. Anstey, Letter 11, End of Footnote And his manner of disconcerting these schemes was such as generally secured him from the rage and resentment of the disappointed. One night when I was in Wiltshire's room, Nash came up to a lady and her daughter, who were people of no inconsiderable fortune, and bluntly told the mother she had better be at home. This was, at the time, thought an audacious piece of impertinence, and the lady turned away, piqued and disconcerted. 
Nash, however, pursued her, and repeated the words again, when the old lady, wisely conceiving there might be some hidden meaning couched under this seeming insolence, retired, and coming to her lodgings, found a coach and six at the door, which a sharper had provided to carry off her eldest daughter. End of section 6